You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. As regular listeners will know, I usually co-host this podcast every week with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher series, and of course her latest book, The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery. But this week I'm without the wonderful Alison in this in-between episode. She's doing authory things with her new book. Now, we've received so much feedback from listeners that they can't wait for a new episode to drop. So if you're hanging for that, stay tuned. It's going to be released in its usual time. But in the meantime, we thought we'd entertain you with these story sessions where we bring the bookshop to you. And it's where we read or where the author reads or someone fabulously famous reads generally the first chapter or so of a book that we recommend. So that way you can sample it while you're walking the dog or commuting or doing the laundry or whatever. Now, if you're not comfortable standing in the bookshop reading the first chapter, this is a great way to sample the book. This week, I've chosen Death in Dalesford by Kerry Greenwood. Why? Well, because who doesn't love Phryne Fisher, right? I first discovered Kerry Greenwood years ago and have loved seeing her wonderful mystery books featuring her main character, Phryne Fisher, a private detective in Melbourne in the late 1920s. First, I just love that era. And second, I love that these stories are set in Australia. And then it was so great to see them come to life on TV in Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, starring Essie Davis as Phryne Fisher. I never missed an episode. The first Phryne Fisher book was way back in 1989, and it seems that Miss Fisher, or Kerry Greenwood, isn't slowing down because Kerry has written 16 books in this series. Kerry has won all sorts of writing awards, including the Sisters in Crime inaugural Lifetime Achievement Award at its 13th Davitt Awards for Australian Women's Crime Writing, and also a Ned Kelly Lifetime Achievement Award. To give you an idea... Of what the book is about, here's the blurb from the book. Surrounded by secrets, great and small, the formidable Miss Phryne Fisher returns to vanquish injustice. When a mysterious invitation arrives for Miss Phryne Fisher from an unknown Captain Herbert Spencer, Phryne's curiosity is excited. Spencer runs a retreat in Victoria's spa country for shell-shocked soldiers of the Great War. It's a cause after Phryne's own heart, but what could Spencer want from her? Phryne and the faithful Dot view their spa sojourn as a short holiday, but are quickly thrown into the midst of disturbing Highland gatherings, disappearing women, murder, and the mystery of the Temperance Hotel. Meanwhile, Cess, Bert, and Tinker find a young woman floating face down in the harbour dead. Tinker, with Jane and Ruth, Phryne's resilient adopted daughters together decide to solve what appears to be a heinous crime. Disappearances, murder, bombs, booby traps and strange goings-on land Miss Phryne Fisher right in the middle of her most exciting adventure. All right, well, I know that that blurb intrigued me. So now here are the first three chapters, because they're short chapters, to give you a taste of this fabulous book. Chapter 1 The sons of Mary seldom bother, for they have inherited that good part, but the sons of Martha favour their mother of the careful soul and the troubled heart. And because she lost her temper once, and because she was rude to the Lord her guest, her sons must wait upon Mary's sons, world without end, reprieve or rest. Rudyard Kipling, The Sons of Martha it was a lazy summer's morning in St Kilda. The early sun was no longer the copper-coloured furnace of January, and instead of beating at the window with bronze gongs and hammers, was knocking respectfully at the shutters, asking leave for admittance. Without, the tide was gently turning, lapping over the mid-ochre sands of the beach and promising light refreshment for anyone wanting a matitudinal paddle. Last night's windstorm had blown itself out, and through the open window drifted a cool, damp sensation of overnight rain. Phryne Fisher rose from her bed, wrapped a turquoise satin dressing gown around her impossibly elegant person, 
tied the cord and tiptoed towards the bathroom where a malachite bathtub and unlimited hot water awaited her. Pausing at the door, she turned and raked her boudoir with a long, ever so slightly greedy and thoroughly complacent look. She admired the wickedly crimson satin bedsheets, the hand-painted silk bedspread, the book of hours of Marie de France, now wantonly disordered, with its scenes of medieval life carelessly strewn over the aquamarine Chinese carpet. The half-empty crystal decanter, with matching balloon glasses, both empty, whose contents had been imported at absurd expense from the sunny vineyards of Armagnac. The outstretched paws and arched back of the sleeping cat ember, jet black and sleek with good living. And the jet black eyebrows and perfect features of Lin Chung, who arched his golden back and burrowed further down between the sheets. She admired his bare muscular shoulder, smiled with a thrill of retrospective delight, and entered the bathroom. From her extensive collection of bath salts, Phryne chose the china pot labelled Gardenia and emptied a goodly pile into the shaped malachite tub. She opened both brass taps and watched as the twin torrents of water swirled and effervesced. A warm, fragrant aroma of English country garden caressed her nostrils. Phryne slipped out of her gown and lowered herself into the water. She surveyed her slender body with a certain level of satisfaction, her imagination still ravished by the previous night's passion. A woman on the brink of thirty always nurtured secret suspicions of fading charms, even someone with Phryne's armour-plated self-esteem. Yet, judging by her lover's awed reactions and responses, it would seem that this was far from being the case. Lin himself was utterly unchanged by marriage. So many businessmen let themselves go, their waistlines expanded along with their incomes. Lin's copper-coloured body was as smooth and strong as a teenage boy's. The only sign of change he had observed was a small knot of ebony hair in the centre of his delectable chest, with the merest suggestion of a line of down heading due southwards. Her tongue had given this matter some considerable exploration the previous evening. Phryne grinned and began to soap her person. I'm well and truly on the shelf now, and the world can watch me not care, she told herself. How fortunate that her idiotic father had shown the foresight to dismiss her from his baronial presence some years ago, otherwise she would have been visited with a plague of suitors of varying degrees of loathsomeness. For the English nobility, an unmarried daughter of twenty-nine was a matter of some uneasiness, somewhere on the continuum between unsuitable entanglements and failure to ride hounds. Her father's threat to cut her off with a shilling for gross disobedience had been rendered toothless when, upon obtaining her majority, Phryne had calmly removed her assets from her father's rapacious fingers. To compound his sense of disgrace, his other daughter, Eliza, had combined the twin horrors of socialism and unnatural vice. Phryne's opinion of her father had not been improved by this attitude, Socialism was frequently affected in noble families, and lesbianism could easily be forgiven in polite society, given that Eliza's chosen had been of impeccably noble birth. Once you were in Debrett's, unnatural vice was magically transmuted into passionate friendship, which had been socially acceptable ever since Lady Eleanor Butler and the Honourable Sarah Ponsonby had set up house together as the Ladies of Langollen. Even the Duke of Wellington had visited them, although that said less than it might, since the Iron Duke was renowned for not giving even one hoot for popular prejudice. Nevertheless, father had broken off all contact with both daughters, and all his attention, such as it was, had been lavished on his son and heir, Tos, of whom the best that could be said was that the future Baron of Richmond-upon-Thames would be a worthy heir to the present one. Neither the present nor future lords would ever visit either Phryne or Eliza. Phryne felt she could moderate her grief. She sank down deeper into the smooth embrace of the steaming waters. It was so much easier dealing with the Chinese. Lin's wife Camellia was a typical exemplar of Chinese womanhood, small of body and voice, discreet, self-assured, 
and possessing a will of pure adamant. The greeting she gave Phryne whenever they chanced to meet was gracious, polite, and filled with iron Confucian certainty. You are my husband's honoured concubine, and I trust you implicitly. You may walk through Chinatown in perfect security. Anyone who offers you offence may expect consequences of considerable severity, up to and including a small battle-axe to the back of the head. I, on the other hand, am Lin's first lady. I have my position and you have yours. We understand each other perfectly. Phryne sat up in the bath and listened. Noises off appeared to be happening. Since Dot was unlikely to outrage her maidenly modesty by attempting to bring her employer breakfast in bed when Phryne was entertaining, this must mean that Lynn himself was doing the honours with the assistance of Mr and Mrs Butler. She climbed out of the bath, dried herself off with two towels of spotless white cotton and wrapped herself anew in her turquoise silk robe. Do I smell eggs and bacon, Lin? she inquired, opening the bedroom door. Lin Chung pushed a prodigiously laden tea trolley into the centre of the boudoir and gestured to the two cushioned seats. Eggs, bacon, and all the accoutrements of an English breakfast, he announced. I believe there are roast tomatoes, sautéed mushrooms, and sausages made from absurdly pampered pigs. There's also toast, Earl Grey tea, marmalade, and strawberry jam. Will the silver lady join me at breakfast? Phryne lifted the lids of the chafing dishes one by one and inhaled deeply. I was scarcely expecting such luxury. How did you manage to get the trolley upstairs? Was Cantonese magic involved at all? Lin folded his hands in an imitation of a stage Chinaman. Ah, the East is filled with mysteries. Phryne gently pushed him down into one of the chairs. Well, yes, Lin, otherwise, why would it be called the mysterious East? But how... Oh, of course, I forgot, the dumbwaiter. Mr Butler had of late come down with a serious outburst of home handyman and had installed a dumbwaiter where one of Phryne's wardrobes had been. Phryne had been about to object in the strongest terms when she recollected that Mr. Butler was, it must be admitted, getting on in years, and that, moreover, the day would inevitably come when Dot would finally achieve holy matrimony with Hugh Collins, and might not be available to attend upon Phryne. Yet refreshments must be conveyed to the lady of the house in her first-floor bedroom. So the dumbwaiter had been installed, skilfully concealed behind a Chinese silkscreen when not in use. For some time, conversation gave place to unbridled gluttony. It was not Phryne's habit to eat breakfast at all, beyond a French roll and a morning coffee, but erotic adventures awoke her hunger for other forms of bodily delights. As Phryne closed the lids on the devastated remains of the hot dishes and looked with devotion at her beautiful lover, he reached out his right hand and closed it around her left. Phryne, may I ask you something? Ask me anything and I shall answer. Yesterday I saw Bert and Cess driving their cab and as their fare debouched right in front of me I inquired after their health. As one does, Phryne buttered herself another piece of toast and smeared it with marmalade. And how did they respond? Cess looked inscrutable and muttered something and Bert gave it as his opinion that he was a menace to shipping. What does this mean? Phryne clasped his hand tighter and raised it to her lips. It means he's in robust spirits. Your English is perfect Oxford, but I presume Australian Argo did not feature in the curriculum at Balliol College. No, it didn't. Is this like a bald man must always be called curly? And a red man is always bluey. It's similar, but not quite the same. Phryne pondered for a long moment how Lin Chung had got along with the rowdy undergraduates, deciding there were several reasons why he would have flourished there. Balliol was one of the more intellectual seats of learning at Oxford. His imperturbable calm would have unnerved most of the bullies, and the whiff of serious money would have inspired automatic respect. As she nodded to herself, Phryne became aware that Lin was studying her closely, you are perhaps wondering how I fared at Balliol, being so blatantly oriental. 
I was, Franny confessed. It was largely trouble-free. Don't forget, I had Lee Penn with me. Having one's own servant in college lent a certain cachet. And he paused and allowed himself a complacent smile of recollection. And Lee Penn was available to chastise the rowdier elements under the influence of excessive alcohol, Franny suggested. He was. It is his duty and pleasure to serve. I trust no one was seriously injured. He inserted three of them into an ornamental fountain. They suffered nothing worse than bruises, both to the person and personality. Youthful high spirits. That was indeed the official verdict. I see. Lynn, Phryne leaned back seductively, how soon must you depart? He gazed with appreciation at a glimpse of perfect ivory breast beginning to escape from her robe. I have a meeting at noon. Phryne glanced at her bedroom clock, a modest walnut arrangement standing on the mantelpiece. It's only 9.30. Plenty of time. She leaned closer to Lynn. Tomorrow I'm departing for the countryside. And which district will be favoured with your august presence? Dalesford. I have received an unusual request and I am minded to investigate. Do you know of the place? A little. They are building a new lake there and unfortunately the market gardens of the local Chinese will be submerged by it. There's been a great deal of talk about it in the Dalesford Advocate. Everybody wants the lake, but nobody wants a rather expensive road diversion, but no one has spared a thought for the market gardeners. That's very careless of them. Perhaps I should intervene on their behalf, or perhaps the Lin family. She allowed the sentence to hang delicately in the air. Lin leaned back in his chair and retied his crimson dressing gown around his delectable body. There's no need, Phryne. Measures have already been taken. The gardeners are being moved to Malden and elsewhere. The land did not actually belong to our people. It was theirs by grace and favour, and now it is being resumed by the local community. I will send someone around with copies of the newspaper from my files, if you like. That would be most helpful, Lynn. Do you happen to have files on every town in Victoria? He laughed aloud. Only those where my people are involved, directly or indirectly, which is perhaps more than you would think. Only thus can we maintain our honoured position here. Honoured position? But at least there had been no massacres of the Chinese in Victoria, thanks to Constable Thomas Cook of the Castlemaine Police Station, representing in his lonely self the awesome majesty of Queen Victoria and her laws. But fear, loathing, ill-will and general xenophobia there had most certainly been, and it had not yet abated. Still, divining that Lynn would like the subject changed, and quickly, she returned to the subject of her own forthcoming visit to the region. She stood up, reached into her purse, and unfolded a letter, handing it to him. Lynn perused the following with raised eyebrows. The Spa, Hepburn Springs, 23 February 1929. Dear Miss Fisher, I write to you at the recommendation of Dr. Elizabeth McMillan, who has visited here on occasion. I know that you served with distinction in the war, and you will be aware that all too many of our brave survivors suffer from shell shock. The army and the ministry offer them little sympathy and even less help. They are not shirkers or cowards, but men who have endured more than flesh and blood can manage. At my spa, I am attempting to provide my patients with the rest, recuperation and care they so badly need. I would like to invite you to see my establishment for yourself, after which I hope you may see your way clear to supporting my endeavours. Would you care to join me for dinner this coming Friday? Yours sincerely, Herbert Spencer, Captain, Retired. What do you make of that? Lynn slipped one hand inside his dressing gown and ran his hand over his chest. Phryne suppressed the erotic thrill that surged through her body. Any information this admirably well-informed man could supply beforehand might be vital. The first thing I should mention is that Hepburn Springs is not Dalesford. While the two communities are contiguous, they have quite different characters. Hepburn Springs is further into the mountain forest. How far away from Dalesford? They are about three miles apart, town centre to town centre, though there are houses all along the road connecting them. And the spa? 
It was once a place of secret women's rituals among the local Aboriginal tribes who were naturally, comprehensively dispossessed last century. The spa is said to have extraordinary healing properties. And now this Captain Spencer is using it for shell shock victims? Intriguing. Your captain sounds like a kind and generous man. Indeed, and how is Dalesford so different? Hepburn Springs is a place of quiet refinement. Dalesford, which is far larger and more spacious, is rather more boisterous, and it possesses a remarkable curiosity. Phryne raised an eyebrow. Lynn matched her by raising both of his own with matching grin. There is a licensed premises called the Temperance Hotel. That does appear to be one of the less successful advertising decisions in history, Phryne remarked. So one would think at first glance. However, the pub does serve wine, beer and cider. Only spirits are forbidden. This appears to be a compromise widely acceptable by the local community. How very Australian. Vociferous arguments in favour of temperance would be made so long as drunken husbands staggered home from the local pub ready to take out their incoherent frustration with the world on their long-suffering wives and children. But while it was possible to get rolling drunk on beer alone, it required a good deal more focus to attain the condition of violent drunkenness. Thus, while many Australians had agitated for total prohibition, which had worked so well in America, a substantial body of opinion held that such a compromise was both achievable and prudent. Phryne smiled at her lover. I would be intrigued to visit this place. Perhaps when I have seen Captain Spencer, I should pay a visit to Dalesford as well. Do any of the other pubs serve spirits? Lynn chuckled. They do, but married patrons are severely discouraged by their wives from visiting such places, whereas a few drinks at the Temperance Hotel is something the women of Dalesford can accommodate for their hard-working husbands. Also... Lynn paused and smiled the smile of a fallen angel. Apparently one of the barmaids is a famous beauty. Her hand in marriage is comprehensively sought. But not yet attained? Not thus far, and I imagine that the rivalry between her suitors sells many a drink on the premises. No doubt. You mentioned wine and cider as well as beer. The wine is because of the Swiss Italians, I expect. Do they make it locally? Lynn nodded. But cider, it's hardly a common drink. This would be the local Cornish influence. Lynn, you are a minefield of information, she squeezed his hand. It's now almost ten. You said that you have a meeting at noon. I do, Silver Lady, and I must depart a half hour before. But until then, she leaned forward, allowing the front of her gown to fall open. Lynn's almond eyes flickered over Phryne's breasts for a moment. Until then, I would be pleased to accompany you once more among the chrysanthemums, if it be your will. Phryne reached out and took his face between her hands. Her mouth opened and she traced the tip of her tongue around his lips. It is indeed my will. Lynn's hand closed around her left breast and Phryne stood up, reaching for the cord of his dressing gown. She began to chant a poem she had recently discovered. It was called Butterflies in Love with Flowers, and she hoped that Lynn might know it, even though it was originally written in Mandarin and his family spoke Cantonese. I would rather drink to intoxication. One should sing when one has wine in hand, but drinking to escape offers no reprieve. I do not mind that my clothes are getting looser. My lover is worthy of desire. Lynn's strong arms pulled her body close as their garments fell unregarded onto the carpet. Come, little flower, the butterfly is impatient, he whispered, and he carried her without effort back to bed. Chapter 2 Awake, for morning in the bowl of night has flung the stone that puts the stars to flight, and lo, the hunter of the east has caught the sultan's turret in a noose of light. Edward Fitzgerald, Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam of Naishapur. The next day dawned hotter with a north wind which blew rasping, unpleasant odours from the unwashed suburbs of the inner east. 
Phryne awoke fashionably late to receive Dot, already clothed in a light summer dress, beige, a thin woolen jumper, cocoa, sensible walking shoes, henna, with a lyle stockings, cinnamon, and a light silk shawl, fawn. Phryne had never realised quite how many flavours of brown one wardrobe could accommodate, but Dot was, it appeared, determined to encompass them all. One day, Phryne considered she would attempt to discover as discreetly as possible if her devoted companion was subject to a particular form of colour blindness. She desperately wanted to introduce Dot to the possibilities of blues and reds. Perhaps she could begin with the milder shades of maroon. Since Phryne was unaccompanied this morning, Dot had brought up her employer's more customary morning repast, a pot of fragrant Italian coffee and a French roll. This is very kind of you, Dot. Are we packed? Dot stood with her hands clasped together, rather as if waiting for her first communion. Yes, miss. I've packed enough for a week's stay. Will that be enough, do you think? Phryne poured herself a cup of steaming Arabica and sipped it gratefully. I think so, Dot. I hope that this will be a pleasant holiday, but a week away from civilization will be quite long enough. I don't want to leave the girls and tinker for any longer than that. It was very kind of you to invite Hugh to come and stay here while his bachelor quarters are being rebuilt. The timing was propitious. Hugh can keep half an eye on the girls and tinker. Yes, Miss Phryne. Oh, and Mr Lynn sent some newspapers around this morning. Dot's normally pale features coloured somewhat, as they generally did, whenever Lynn Chung was under discussion. The Dalesford Advocate. I've been reading a recent issue this morning. It says there'll be a Highland gathering tomorrow. Should I have packed something scotch? Unless you mean whiskey, Dot, no. I would love to attend a Highland gathering, but I'm not dressing up in a McSporran tartan. I think Sir Walter Scott has a good deal to answer for. The Highlanders of my acquaintance are not over-fond of tartan culture such as it is. Phryne thought for a moment. Dot, I know it's still summer, but did you pack any warm clothes? Yes, miss. I looked up Dalesford and Hepburn Springs before I packed. It's 2,000 feet above sea level, and it's in the middle of something called the Wombat Forest. Do you think we'll meet any wombats? I hope so, Dot. There is something gloriously single-minded about wombats. All right, I'll meet you downstairs in an hour. Ask Mr B to get the car ready. Dot hovered for a moment. We could go by train, miss, she suggested, hopefully. Yes, we could, Dot, but I don't want to. We'd have to go via Ballarat, and I've had quite enough of that train line. In any case, Hepburn Springs is three miles from the nearest train station, and the hills are a little too vertiginous for comfort. The car it is, Dot. Yes, miss. With that, Dot withdrew, and Phryne began upon her breakfast in earnest. An hour later, Phryne emerged from the house dressed in a long leather coat, leather boots, a flying helmet, goggles and a white silk scarf. Mr Butler had left the motor purring to itself and stood to attention at the front door, waving a handkerchief and smiling. Phryne was perfectly able to crank the six-cylinder monster into action herself, but it was Mr Butler's pleasure to do the honours himself. She opened the boot and observed her own enormous valises, which occupied most of the available room. Dot's own valise was nestling under a wicker picnic basket. She closed the boot and climbed into the driver's seat. Dot, she called, time to go. A moment later, the front door opened and Dot emerged, dressed as she had been earlier, but with the addition of a cable stitch cream cricket jumper, a chocolate brown overcoat and an extraordinary contraption covering her head, which suggested that she expected imminent attack by squadrons of bees. Dot hurried past Mr B and slipped into the passenger seat, her gaze fixed straight ahead. "'Whatever are you wearing, Dot?' Phryne inquired. Dot shot her mistress a quick, fiercely embarrassed look. "'It's a Frida Storm veil, miss, for when you're driving fast.' Phryne nodded and forbore to question any further. She had heard of Frida Storm veils for frightened passengers and accepted the implied reproach on her reckless driving— she engaged the clutch, selected first gear, and chugged out into the esplanade. Here, along the beach, the air smelled of old seaweed and salty sand. 
a considerable improvement on the odours of Richmond and Collingwood, which Phryne remembered only too well from her impoverished childhood. Once into second gear, the car began to purr. Not long now, my tigress, she murmured under her breath, and you shall have your chance to fly. The 403 cubic inches of her motor could achieve speeds greatly in excess of either speed limits or dot's comfort. Mark Bierkidge, who had designed the motor, was better known as a maker of engines for aeroplanes, and the Hispano Suiza's block was exactly half of one of his aviation V-12s. As Phryne surged through the inner northwestern suburbs, Dot considered her headgear. It was grey, like Dot's mood, with double elastic, and further anchored by two vicious-looking hatpins stuck into her brown plaits, one from each side. It did obscure her vision if she chanced to open her eyes, and that was all to the good, but it was not helping as much as she had hoped. As a result, her eyes remained resolutely shut for the most part, and Phryne was able to pursue her imperious path through Melbourne's traffic unobserved by her prayerful companion. Dot was now invoking the succour of St Christopher, patron and guardian of travellers. A small silver medallion hung from her neck, and both her neat hands were clasped around it. While her eyes were closed, however, her ears were receiving a good deal. Curses, shouts, car horns, police whistles and the rebuking clangour of a passing tram. Better not to know, she decided, and continued her novena. When she had finished, Dot inhaled deeply. The passing air was astringent but clean, and there was no sound but the roar of the six-cylinder engine and the wind. She opened her eyes to find Phryne slowing down. They were approaching the top of a substantial hill, and beside the road another car had paused on the gravel verge. A red-faced man was standing beside the open bonnet of a two-seater sports car. Occupying the passenger seat was a young woman in a tight bonnet. Her eyes appeared to be rolled upwards in resignation. The man's gloved hand was fiddling with the radiator cap, which was steaming ominously. As they drew to a stop, the radiator erupted, drenching the man's coat in grubby brown water. Need some help? Phryne called out. The man flourished a tin jerry can. No worries, miss. I've got a refill, but thanks anyway. Phryne waved her gloved hand and accelerated away. Cars and steep ascents did not play well together as a rule, but apparently the Hispano Suiza laughed at mere hillocks such as these. After a few more undulations, they careered down a steep hill into what appeared to be a valley of apple orchards. Where are we, miss? Dodd ventured in a timid voice. Heading into the Avenue of Honour in Bacchus Marsh, Dot, Phryne informed her, where the speed limit is 30 miles per hour, a restriction which I intend to obey. She eased the motor back to a gentle purr, and Dot looked at the road with interest. Flourishing elm saplings lined both sides. There are plaques there, miss, Dot observed. Were these trees planted in memory of those fallen in battle? Yes, Dot, most of them brutally murdered by incompetent generals. Dot knew well that Miss Phryne had played a considerable role herself in the Great War, decided to let this past. You don't mean Sir John Monash, surely, Miss? Indeed not. He and Allenby were the only generals commanding who seemed to have any idea how to win a war without getting half their own men killed. So many dead from one small town. Dot crossed herself. "'Miss, I hope you can help Captain Spencer,' she ventured. "'From his letter, he seems to be a good man.' "'So he does, Dot,' said Phryne, "'as they passed by a most impressive town hall "'and began to climb out of the snug valley again. "'The captain intrigues me. "'I feared the war had killed off every Herbert, "'Albert and Clarence in the nation. "'I'm delighted to discover that one Herbert "'at least remains alive and helpful, "'and with any luck he may prove to be a most attractive young man.' The girls and Tinker are back at school. Mr and Mrs B can mind the house and the domestic animals, and I can feel a small adventure coming on. Besides, I've never been to Hepburn, and Dr Macmillan recommends it highly. The roses should be out, and I hear that it has most beautiful village. Since they were travelling at a modest, refined speed up the long hill, Dot took out the Victorian Government Tourist Bureau guidebook and perused the page on Hepburn Springs. The curative... Properties of the mineral springs were extolled at length, although 
Sinusoidal electric baths sounded a trifle extreme, even for her headstrong and fearless employer. Dot made a firm vow to herself that having electricity applied to her bath would happen over her lifeless body. And a shilling a time? A mere sixpence would purchase a hot or cold mineral bath without high-voltage shocks being applied to her person. A hot bath sounded like a splendid idea. Miss, it says here that one of the springs is sulphur. That can't be right, surely. Indeed it can, Dot. The idea of a brimstone bath is appealing in a strange way, and the others sound wonderful. They reached the top of the hill. Away in the distance a line of hills loomed. Phryne pointed. That's where we're going, Dot, into the hills and the wombat forest. She pressed her foot on the accelerator. The Hispano Suiza emitted an excitable roar and the car leapt forward once more. Dot closed her eyes and resumed praying. When she opened her eyes again, they were turning right into a broad stretch of nondescript farmland. Here we leave the highway. Phryne reached over and patted Dot's arm in sympathy. Only about 20 miles to go, Dot. Bear up. We'll be there in half an hour. Yes, miss, I'm sure we will. As they entered the forest, Phryne slowed down. Smell the eucalypts, Dot. Yes, miss. Even through her veil, Dot found the scent overwhelming, but it was undeniably refreshing. I can also smell water, miss. Yes, we're now entering spa country, and even in summer it's wet. As they motored through the canopy of trees, Dot saw many farms, with houses of wood and stone. Occasional horses nibbled the verdant grass. Contented cows grazed, and sheep munched in asinine oblivion. Occasional villages lined the roadside. One was called Sailor's Falls, which seemed extremely odd. Was this a place where maritime workers fell off furniture? Or was it a place of a waterfall discovered by a sailor? Or a man called Sailor? What would it be like to live in one of these isolated farms, Dot wondered. In the city there were lawless pockets in the slums where terrible things could happen, but at least there were neighbours to whom you could turn for help. In the countryside anything could happen, and who would even know? She was distracted by her morose reflections by a flash of colour. Miss, what's that? Dot pointed to a post on the edge of an ill-kept paddock by the roadside. Phryne stopped the car and looked hard at it. It was a brightly coloured woollen scarf, knotted loosely around the top of the post and held in place with twine about ten feet above the ground. It flapped occasionally as a stray breeze caught it. Well spotted, Dot. Perhaps it's what they use for a scarecrow here. Maybe the original scarecrow ran away from home because it was all too depressing. Phryne indicated a dilapidated farmhouse set back from the road. A door hung drunkenly by one hinge. Two of the windows were broken. There were no humans in sight anywhere, but a depressed horse stared at its paddock in a brown study, and scrawny chickens pecked aimlessly at nothing in particular. A generalised sense of doom hung in the atmosphere, summarised by a single washing line strung forlornly between two worm-eaten wooden posts. Sadly pegged together were a pair of overalls, a shabby print dress, two indescribably awful towels, a stained woolen jumper, and an assortment of grey underwear that looked like it had died without mourners. Beneath the laundry, a shaggy black-and-white cat glared at them, as if it held a personal grudge, then stalked off in medium-to-low dungeon. "'I don't know how this farm strikes you, Dot, but it's a little bit too Thomas Hardy for my liking.' "'It gives me the shivers, miss.' "'Quite. Let's get out of here.' Phryne engaged the clutch and they sped off round the corner. Suddenly the sun came out from behind a cloud and bathed the open road in radiant sunshine. The forest gave way to more farms. Phryne wound around a corner and cruised over a bridge. On the other side, a solid-looking red brick pub announced its availability for luncheon and refreshments. Three horny-handed sons of toil raised glasses of beer and Phryne waved happily to them. The road wound still further and began a long climb to the top of a hill, crowned by some imposing architecture. At the summit was a crossroads. This, it appears, was the centre of Dalesford, and quietly impressive it was. Deep bluestone guttering lined both sides of the road, which widened into the sort of thoroughfare in which a coach and four could easily be turned about. 
Shoppers shopped in prosperous-looking establishments, children chased each other along the footpaths, and the entire scene was charming to the eye. Phryne was about to advance down the hill when a raucous whistle sounded. She observed a very large, uniformed policeman standing in the middle of the road. His puffy right hand was held palm outwards, right in their path. Phryne stopped in the middle of the road and leaned over to address the obstacle. "'Good afternoon, officer,' she said brightly. "'How may I be of assistance?' An unfortunate conglomeration of flabby, porcine features frowned horribly at her. Hold it there. May I see your driver's license, ma'am? The Irish brogue was unmistakable. So was the exasperating air of self-righteous stupidity which accompanied his shiny sergeant's stripes. He sweated profusely. He had shaved inexpertly, and jet-black stubble mingled with cuts and abrasions, as if he had just gone three rounds with a cheese grater and been defeated on a technical knockout. Phryne handed over her licence, wondering if he would need any help with the longer words. He frowned again. Miss Frinny Frisher, is it? Something like that, yes. And where would you be off to then, Miss Frisher? Hepburn Springs. And if you would be so kind as to give me my licence back, I would like some afternoon tea. I'm staying at the Moulton, if you think that is any of your business. The sergeant started as if he had been bitten by a snake. You don't want to do that, miss. Some very dubious characters there. Phryne held out her gloved hand, and with reluctance the sergeant returned her licence and stood aside. Thank you, sergeant, and I hope you have a really annoying day. Chapter 3 Dreaming when dawn's left hand was in the sky, I heard a voice within the tavern cry, Awake, my little ones, and fill the cup, before life's liquor in its cup be dry. Edward Fitzgerald, The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam of Naishapur Detective Inspector Jack Robinson made his thoughtful way back to the City South Police Station. The Commissioner was not happy and had said so at length, he had concluded his remarks by suggesting that perhaps Detective Inspector Robinson should consider his position. Detective Inspector Robinson made it clear that he had already considered his position. The Commissioner went on to suggest that in view of his considerable services to the Victoria Police, it was even possible that another promotion might be in order, provided always that there was a satisfactory conclusion to his next assignment. Detective Inspector Robinson had silently called upon his maker to give him strength and opened his mouth to tell the Commissioner to go and take a long walk off a short pier. He had closed his mouth again while the ancient grandfather clock in the corner of the room ticked its erratic journey around the Roman numerals. The assignment was about as welcome as the delivery of a consignment of dead rats onto the front veranda. Nobody else had made any headway on this case for the very simple reason that the offender in question had most of the senior management of the Victoria Police and a fair portion of the government in his capacious and unsavoury raincoat pocket. But, and it was a highly significant but, the current incumbent was rumoured to be entirely honest. Robinson had stared long and thoughtfully at James Gordon, His Majesty's Commissioner of Police in the Sovereign State of Victoria. It was not a pleasing face. The pallid, sweat-beaded complexion looked like uncooked damper. The watery eyes resembled those of a goldfish who has forgotten the whereabouts of the treasure chest. The overweight torso bulged in unsavoury places, and yet the magic words Chief Inspector had been uttered. In consequence, Detective Inspector Robinson had agreed that the posting would receive his assent, and so the meeting broke up, with a remarkable absence of cordiality on either side. Jack reached the station in no good temper and summoned his faithful offsider with a peremptory wave of his right hand. Detective Sergeant Collins was only too glad to be diverted from his morning's dusty paperwork, which contained little of interest, and followed his superior officer into his private office. Close the door, will you, Collins? Hugh Collins did so, making as little noise as possible, and looked at Robinson with the air of a favourite dog being invited for a walk. How did your meeting with the Commissioner go, sir? Jack Robinson shook his head in sorrow. Collins, I have good news and bad news. I am being seconded to a special project. Is that the good news or the bad news? Jack laughed. 
I don't really know. The good bit is the opportunity to put behind bars one of our most prominent citizens. The bad news is that three blokes I know have already tried. One's dead and the other two were dismissed from the force. So who are you going after? Hugh wanted to know. Robinson gave him a look. The business conglomerate controlled by a certain Barry Mortimer. Collins yelped, not Barry the shark. The same. However, I have grounds for optimism. But sir, Collins began to march up and down the shabby carpet, registering alarm. The shark has all the government bigwigs in his pocket. You can't go after him. Nevertheless, I'm going to try, and that's as much as I'm going to tell you, Collins, because you won't be part of this particular operation. The squad has been hand-picked by the Commissioner, and whatever we may think of him, I have reason to believe that he at least is straight and not in anybody's pocket, except possibly that of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. Jack waved a hand. Sit down, Collins, you're giving me a headache. Hugh Collins subsided, steaming with equal parts concern and relief. Serving officers who found themselves on the wrong side of the shark tended to have the life expectancy of a tulip in a blast furnace. If you were lucky, you were accused of police corruption and dismissed. If you were unlucky, you might well find yourself investigating the Yarra River or the clammy depths of Victoria Dock in concrete overshoes. But he had faith in his boss. If anyone could pull this off, then surely Robinson could. Since his engagement to Dot, though, Hugh had become a little more careful of his own person. Good luck, sir. Thank you. Unfortunately, Collins, this means that you will be working for Acting Detective Inspector Fraser. You will call him Sir, you will obey his instructions, and you will only investigate behind his back if it becomes clear that a miscarriage of justice is imminent. In that event, you will present him with the results of your own investigations – and when he takes all the credit for your work, you will keep your mouth shut, salute enthusiastically, and reflect that in the Victorian police, credit is eventually given where it is merited. I hope to be back in due course. Good luck. Jack stood up, as did Hugh. They shook hands with the solemnity normally afforded to the laying of foundation stones or the opening of bridges. Then Jack clapped his hat on his head and he took his leave. The wrought iron front gate of Lonsdale Technical School was invitingly open and Tinker strolled through it into the street. He was happy, as he always was, even in the temporary absence of his rescuer and patron, Miss Fisher. I'm happy, he said aloud, careless of whoever might overhear him. I've got a house, he went on in an interior monologue. I've got no screaming babies and hungry young kids to look after and be tormented by. Instead, he had Jane and Ruth, who were quiet and easy to get on with. He had Mr. Hugh, who openly encouraged Tinker in his career aspirations. Hugh was already a policeman and worked for Detective Inspector Robinson. Tinker hoped to one day do the same. And there was Dot. Tinker was puzzled by Dot. He had never met anyone who had religion before, and he found it a bit strange. But Dot was so kind and loving you soon forgot about it. There was Mr. and Mrs. Butler, who were always ready to feed him with their seemingly inexhaustible pantry. I'm really happy, he concluded. I reckon I'm walking on Easy Street. Today had been a good day. He had put up with his mathematics classes and had managed to get most of his sums right. Fractions made more sense when you could see them in front of you. Obviously, seven and three-eighths of an inch were smaller than seven and a half inches. It was right there in front of you on your ruler, he had received a mark of approval from Mr Bradbury for his technical drawing of a workshop. Is that something you would like to make, Tinker? Mr Bradbury had inquired. Tinker had explained that it was where he lived. He had borrowed the household tape measure, a proper spring-loaded tin one, and taken all the measurements. His shed was nine feet four and a half inches by six feet two inches and seven feet six and three-eighths of an inch high. Everything in it was his, and it felt good. He walked quickly to Swanston Street, arriving just in time to catch a southbound tram. He was in no hurry to return home, and he felt the need for some adult male company. As the tram sauntered down the hill towards Burke Street, Tinker stared out the window in open admiration of the huge buildings. In one he counted no fewer than eight stories. 
There had been nothing like this in Queenscliff where he had grown up. The click-click of the conductor marking tickets mingled with excitable conversation and the whine of the tram's wheels on the shining metal tracks. Passengers alighted, others climbed on board, mostly women with brown paper parcels under their arms and stowed inside bulging string bags. One heavily laden woman was struggling with a screaming child. Tinker leaned forward and looked at the tow-haired toddler straight in the eye. No need for that, mate. Mum's doing her best. The child stared at him and opened its mouth wide. Yeah, mate, that's the way. Take it easy. This was rewarded with a dazzling smile. Mum shot Tinker a grateful look when he drew a lolly out of her coat pocket with her black-gloved hand and shoved it into the child's gaping mouth. Tinker looked her over without particular interest but noted that she was very pretty. Remembering his life's ambition to become a detective, he composed a detailed description of the woman in the event she had been a material witness to a crime. He closed his eyes and ran through his list. Age, early 20s, height, 5 feet 1, weight, 7 stone, complexion, fair with faint lines beneath her brown eyes, hair, auburn, curly, just above the collar, coat, summer, light brown with a fur trim, hat, expensive, cloche, deep brown. He opened his eyes again, nodded briefly to her and smiled. Tinker got off the tram at Flinders Street. A rich peal of bells rang out from St Paul's Cathedral as he stood and admired the great arches of Flinders Street Station with its row of clocks proclaiming the next departure time for each line. Some of the boys at school spoke in whispers about meeting a girl under the clocks. Tinker wasn't interested in girls, but the information had been filed away as general background detail. The St Kilda line, he noted, had a train leaving in four minutes, but that was not what he wanted. Instead, he set off west down Flinders Street, heading towards the docks. Bert and Cess would probably be there fishing, they had explained the intricacies of the great strike of 1923 to Tinker, who was, to tell the truth, less surprised and outraged than they had expected. Of course the bosses would oppress the workers if they could. And they had got away with it. The strike had collapsed and now the wharfies had to beg for work, resulting in the local version of what Sydney's harbourside workers called the Hungry Mile. If you wanted work in the morning, you had to present yourself at two different docks with a long trek between them. Because Bert and Cess had their own taxi, which they drove in the evenings, they no longer bothered to turn up at 7am, but they still presented themselves at both docks for the 3pm shift. They were rarely picked, however, as the shipping company's representatives invariably recognised the two notorious communists and would only hire them if there was no alternative. As a result, they had plenty of time to fish. Tinker's eyes were fixed on the river as he walked. It was a bright sunny day with little wind and the seagulls gathered by the oily waters of the Yarra, picking through piles of weeds and discarded rubbish. Tinker recognised the gulls as fellows having grown up very like them, gleaning and precarious living on the waterfront from whatever was unattended or unwanted. The elegant grey stone of the seaman's mission loomed up amid the grubby sheds and wharfside clutter. This was Bert and Cess's favourite spot. And there they were, Cess, tall and Viking-like with clipped flaxen hair, and Bert, short, rotund and dark-haired. They had been mates all through the war, and they were still mates now. Having a mate was important, but Tinker was in no hurry to acquire one. His ideal mate would be a fellow cop, an honest cop, naturally. Bert had already told him about crook cops and how to identify them. Crook cops could not be trusted. To begin with, they would be your best friend. Then they'd start showing you easy ways of picking up extra cash on the side. Until one day, your so-called mate had dropped you right in it. Tinker approached slowly, waiting for his cue. He looked at the wickerwork fishing creel, their rough-hewn dark trousers and checked shirts, their elderly hats. Eventually, Bert turned to face him and nodded. G'day, Tink. Tinker paused for the requisite dragging second and responded. G'day, Bert. Sess. Bert made a small, almost indiscernible gesture with his jaw, indicating that Tinker's company was acceptable, and he joined them, watching as Cess dangled a single line down into the fetid waters. No rods today. He looked questioningly at Bert, but did not speak. 
Burke gave another infinitesimal nod of approval and deigned to expound. This is niggling, Tink. River's too dirty right now for anything but eels. Bert indicated a galvo bucket of water next to the creel. When we catch them, we put them in fresh water and carry them home like that. Tinker was impressed. Bert and Cess did not need to go fishing any more than they needed to walk the hungry mile, but they were wharfies by preference and fished because it was part of being a man among men. Tinker really wanted to be like them, even though he was going to be a copper and hence technically a class enemy to the comrades but they respected his ambition nonetheless. As Cess had explained, it was better to have decent blokes in the police force than crooks and outright criminals. Cess niggled the line some more and drew it out again in silent disgust. Bastard get away? Bert inquired out of the corner of his mouth. Cess nodded. Let me have a go. Bert took the fishing line, rebated the now bare hook with a small piece of unidentifiable fish-like substance and cast the line back into the turbid water. Cess regarded Tinker with a friendly eye. School all right, mate? Yeah. Tinker paused, wondering if he should elaborate. The silence seemed inviting enough. Fractions, English, and technical drawing. Bert drew a wriggling eel from the river and cast it into the bucket. English, he repeated. What do they teach you in that, Tink? Poetry? I have to write essays. I'm not very good at it. Worth doing, though, I reckon. Stands to reason you should be able to write. And read, Cess put in. Otherwise the bastards will rob you blind out there. I suppose I'll need to be able to write reports when I become a detective, Tink mused. This produced, if not enthusiasm, at least silent assent. At length, Bert extracted another eel from the river and sent it to join its fellows. Use want to go, Tink? No, thanks. Cess resumed command of the niggling, and Bert rolled himself a smoke from his rusty tobacco tin. User in leaving, yeah? Tink admitted that he was, which meant that the police academy beckoned. Bert nodded. Mate, the cops will want to see a young bloke who works hard, so get your certificate with as good marks as you can. Anyone who wants to give you a job, they'll want to see a nice shiny report. Tinker digested this. The unspoken message was clear. Forget being wharfies like us, it's a mugs game now. Without the taxi and Miss Fisher, he knew Bert and Cess would be seriously up against it. I will, he said, and I'll join the union. Bert gave him a baleful glare. Too bloody right you'll join the union, and when the comrades go out, you go out too. One in, all in. It's all right, Bert, I'll never be a scab. Tinker shut his eyes for a moment, trying to remember something he heard once. You scabbed, old son, in 91, and then once more in 94. Yeah, Bert stubbed out the butt of his cigarette and rolled another one. Blokes wouldn't work with scabs 20 years afterwards. Blokes remember, once a scab, always a scab. At that moment, Cess drew another eel out of the river and deposited it in the bucket. It complained vigorously at first, but subsided eventually into acquiescence with its comrades. Right, Cess, let's get this down to port, said Bert. You come and tink? Where to? We're just going to drop this lot off at Comrade London's place for his missus. Then we can take you home. Oh, yeah, sure, thanks. Tinker pondered for a moment. London, that's an unusual name. Cess grinned. London fog never lifts. Actually, he's not that bad, but he was bludgeoned one long night shift and the name stuck. Yeah, and one night he met the hook coming the other way and didn't make it home at all, Bert held Tinker's eyes. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. We could just give her money, but she wouldn't take it. When the union had money, we'd distribute to everyone according to their needs, but the unions bust these days, and while London's missus would take the money from the union, she won't accept it from us. Instead, we just give her whatever we can catch. She can make a decent eel pie out of this. He gestured to the bucket. All right, that sounded sensible. Tinker looked around. Where's the cab? Over near the dock. Cess picked up the bucket in one hand and slung the creel over his shoulder. Bert led the way along the wooden jetty. A great iron ship was standing by the pier. The comrades look after us, Tink, Bert confided. We do the odd favour for them and they keep an eye on our taxi. No bludger comes near our cab. And there she is. 
He stopped to admire his battered black taxi, then turned to his mate, who had stopped a few paces back and was frowning at the river in consternation. Sis, what's wrong, mate? Nothing good. Have a look. Tinker followed Sess's gaze. A girl's body was bobbing gently on the water's surface. She was face down, and she was not moving. Jeez! Bert had a short think and came to a decision. Sess, you drop off the eels, then take Tinker home. I'll stay here for now. You can come pick me up later. What are we going to do? Tinker wanted to know. Bert looked at Tinker with a stricken face. Call the cops, mate. Just get the taxi out of here, all right? Sess nodded, loaded the bucket into the cab and drove off with Tinker. It's bad when it happens, mate, said Sess, driving around the bay. Bodies floating by the wharf. Sometimes blokes have a disagreement and one of them finishes up in the water. We don't get involved because it's none of our business. But girls is different. Sess changed gears and slowed the car to a stop. Won't be a mo. Stay put, mate. Tinker did so, his mind still filled with the horrific image of the bobbing corpse. The details were burned into his mind. The blouse that must once have been white was grey, and a long black skirt enveloped her pale, stockinged legs like an obscene jellyfish. His skin crawled at the memory. Her single plait drifted about her head helplessly, already gathering weed and refuse. Abruptly, he flung open the car door and got out. Crumpling to his knees, he was sick in the gutter. When he was done, he wiped his mouth and slowly stood up. One day, when he was a detective, he would have to face dead bodies, he reminded himself. And they wouldn't all be blokes who had it coming. It might even be girls like this one, who looked to be no older than Jane or Ruth. But how could a girl like this have ended up in the river? He clenched his teeth and stood up straighter. A sudden flame burned inside him. He, Tinker, was going to solve this case. By himself, if needs be. I hope you enjoyed that reading of The Opening of Death in Dalesford, the first three chapters by Kerry Greenwood. If you're interested in reading it, you can find it wherever good books are sold. If you're interested in writing about mysteries and crime, then you might follow the path of Australian Writers' Centre alumna Sarah Bailey, who has done courses with us and has now released three successful crime novels, The Dark Lake, Into the Night and Where the Dead Go. Here's a quick word from Sarah on how she got published. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Let's hear from Sarah Bailey. My name's Sarah Bailey. Um, I've got a debut novel through Alan and Umlin out at the moment. It's called The Dark Lake. It's a crime thriller. I was working in advertising at the time and I was working at a great company and had a really sort of good career, but I just had this burning desire to write all the time. I'd heard really good things about the Australian Writer Centre's course. Um, the reviews were always really positive and people always sort of providing really good feedback on social media. So. Um, I just thought that was a really good place for me to start. I found Nicole Hayes, the tutor that I had in the course that I did through the Australian Writers' Centre, really inspiring, um, really down-to-earth um, teaching style, but just a really great way of um, pulling together some of the writing skills that she's picked up over the years. She had such a passion for narrative and structure um, and being a published author, she had some, some really practical um, advice and knowledge to share as well. The process for me was just setting my own deadlines, which was something that was covered off in the Australian Writer Centre's course as well. Went, this is how many words I'd like to have by these different points along the year. And then I um, just worked towards getting the words down. And then I sort of um, approached agents, and then the agents helped me approach publishers. In the end, when Alan and Unwin decided to publish the novel and um, that was all confirmed, it was, it was amazing. It was just such an amazing um, experience to go through and I felt really fortunate. Um, but also really proud because it had obviously been you know, a really hard, um, hard sort of journey to get there. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that writing was something that was really, really important to me. And then of course, you know, through meeting the people and the tutor that I had, I also picked up a lot of really invaluable skills as well. I think it really just set me off on the right path. Um, and then since then, obviously, 
so much has happened in my world in terms of writing that I really do see it as the first step um, that, I, that I took along that path. It's amazing. I've, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the position where that's, that's my current life. So I think that was, a, that was hugely important um, in terms of getting, getting started. Definitely anyone who's interested in writing and sort of taking a, a, a more serious step toward that as a career or even just a, a more specific hobby. I think the Australian Writer Centre's courses are really worthwhile. I think it's just, it's always nice to be um, in an environment where people are passionate about what you're passionate about. Um, and I think that the, um, the skills and the information that you get from, from courses like that just, just help you sort of really focus. For me, the creative writing course was, was a great starting point. I think it just made me um, rediscover my love for writing at a basic level all over again. Um, so I think that I've definitely spoken to other friends and have suggested that they give it a shot. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Connect with us on social media at Writers' Centre AU on Twitter and Instagram and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Both Alison and I will be back to our regular programming in the next episode. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.